Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Morning, everyone. We are coming close to the end of the book of Jonah. If you are joining us for the first time, we are so happy that you've done so. We've been looking at these four chapters. The four chapters of this book, we are coming to um, the end of the third chapter, which means after this sermon, we'll have two more sermons to go. Uh, And I really like this book, actually, so I feel a bit bad that it's coming to an end like that. But nonetheless, um, we still have these sermons to go through. So let us pray, ask, ask God to help us, and then we'll dig right in. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Lord God Almighty, let your word come forth with clarity. Let your word come forth with power. Let the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be honored. And let the cup of your people be filled. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. If you believe life is not fair, hands up. Uh, see, I just got. Uh, I know Femi will be the only person that will raise up his hand. Oh, what kind of question is that? But here's one way that I can assure you that life is not fair. How many of us have suffered for someone else's screw up? Uh, yeah, you see, life isn't fair. Reminds me of um, many of us who know this. Like, remember secondary school? when the whole class was flogged for somebody else. Uh, it reminds me of um, in secondary school. Uh, it was announced that it wasn't even really well announced, an assembly. It was sort of low-key, just low-key, that um, there would be a sort of monitoring, low-key monitoring of the cleanliness of all our classes. Little did we know that we were all being graded. So one fateful morning on assembly, the results were announced. The top three cleaners classes and the bottom three dirtiest classes. Out of, there were about 30, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, 30 classes in my school at the time. Out of 30, my class was the bottom of the bottom three. Now, it was secondary school. Well, it was secondary school and in assembly, actually, we felt cool about it. You know, because at the end of the day, they said that there is no, there, there is no such thing as bad press, right? The only thing worse than being known for a bad thing is not being known at all. So we were known. You understand? And so we, we thought it was cool. We felt like, yeah, yeah. And we got to our class, and everybody was still feeling fine. And we thought everything was cool until Mr. Ilupeju showed up. Mr. Ilupeju, who is he? Mr. Ilupeju was a class teacher. I don't think he liked the bad press. <laughs> so he proceeded to flog all of us. I will never forget this. Two strokes of the cane on your head. I think he felt our head was not correct. <laughs> yes, everybody was like, ah, ah. Some of us didn't know our rights until one, one Girl, I said, girl, yeah, she was a girl that time. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, my father doesn't flog me on my head. I said, why didn't I? I'd already chopped my own before, you know, and other people started. But I was particularly unhappy at that time because I prided myself in being clean. I didn't feel like I contributed to the dirtiness of the class at the time. And some other people, too, didn't feel like that. Nonetheless, it was collective judgment that was meted out on all of us. Not fair, right? Why did that happen? See, many times we like to think that we should only be treated as individuals. That uh, individuals for our own deeds. But you know, life doesn't work that way. We may be individuals, but we are not isolated. Whether we like it or not, we sign many unwritten social contracts when we are part of families, when we are part of 
churches, but we are part of nations. And because of those unwritten social contracts, many times they benefit or the consequences of other people's actions affect us, and vice versa. Do we understand that? And that's what's happening here in this section in the book of Nineveh. Uh, the book of Jonah. <laughs> you see, the Ninevites are in a collective contract, collective social contract as a nation. And now God's judgment is going to be, it has been pronounced upon them. Now, how did they respond? Because how they responded can teach us a lot about how we too should respond when we're in groups like this, when certain errors or certain bad things have happened within the group that we're part of, whether or not we are the main contributors to that thing. So whether we're in groups like families, our churches, our nations, how do we respond? We'll see that a collective and right response to God, the God of outrageous grace, always leads to his eventual pardon. So. Let's take this sermon, we call it Turning from Our Flaws Together. And we'll look at it under these three headings, Result of Our Collective Flaws, Repenting of Our Collective Flaws, and Pardon for Our Collective Flaws. Result of Our Collective Flaws, Repenting of Our Collective Flaws, and Pardon for Our Collective Flaws. Let's start with the first one, the result of our collective flaws. Why did the message of judgment come to the Ninevites in the first place? Now, in chapter 1, it says that the wicked, their wickedness had come up to God. Here in verse 8, it tells us because of their evil ways and their violence. In previous sermons, one of the things we found out was that the people of Assyria, Nineveh was the capital, were a particularly brutal people. They were a terrorist nation, if you like and that they were so horrible to the people that they conquered. But you know what? This period was not a period of Assyrian dominance. The empire was not actually conquered. In fact, it was a time of decline. If you look at verse 6, what does it call the king? It says the king of Nineveh. That's a funny term because Nineveh was a city. But at this point, their power had been so strong that it was just really, you know, it was really focused on it. It would be like having a time when we'll have the president of Lagos, even though there's Nigeria. Go for Well, I don't know. It depends on who you are. Anyway, but it was a time of decline. So it wasn't so much that the evil was directed towards those outside. Not the king, not the emperor of Assyria, but the king of Nineveh. So who then were the evil ways and the violence directed towards? Themselves. Notice it says, let everyone, everyone, let them give up their evil ways. It doesn't say let the armies that would have been showing the brutality to the outside nation, but let everyone from the least to the greatest, let them give up their evil ways. It was a state of social disharmony in the, in the city of Nineveh at the time. The oppression that they had at one point meted out against others was now directed towards themselves. It was a problem from, as we see, the greatest to the least. The greatest, that is one social class, to the least, another social class. There was social disharmony among the classes of people. How does social disharmony happen? Because what, is, what you are seeing is that the social disharmony is happening because there are evil ways within them and it is meted out through violent ways among the classes. So how does the social disharmony happen? Well, let me give you an equation, small equation. Social alienation plus sin equals to social disharmony. No, it's not going to be on the screen. Social alienation plus sin equals social disharmony. So let's think about the social alienation. What do I mean by social alienation? That is when there is some kind of 
alienation between classes of people within a society. Let's take as a nation. Now, here's what I'm going to do. You have to follow me. I've tried this on others. I'm going to do some pop-level pop level economics within the next few minutes. For those who don't like mathematics, you will be able to follow. I can assure you. I tried it on the worst set of people um, in terms of mathematics, like Tom, Tom and Victoria. <laughs> and they actually got it. You know, creatives, they don't like whatever. So now, but for me to do that, for people like Faye and uh, Femi and Yemi, don't criticize me. It's pop level stuff. All right? Now, so social harmony among all of us. All right, so for you to understand, we have to know two things. What is GDP? What is uh, per capita uh, income? Don't, now, some of you want to sleep. No, don't, don't. <laughs> Come back. What is GDP? Tomua and Victoria want to get married. If Victoria is bringing 11 naira to the house and is earning 11 naira and Tomua is earning 7 naira, right? Their GDP is what? 18 naira. What is their per capita income? <laughs> eh? Nine naira per individual. Eleven plus seven is what? But there are two individuals. So it is what? Nine naira per individual. Okay? So the gross the GDP measures the totality, whereas the uh, per capita income is about the individual on the average, right? Okay, so. Anticipating the sequel of a great movie that is going to come, I want to take you to the nation of Zamunda. <laughs> All right, in Zamunda, and I want to compare 1960 to 1970 Zamunda. Now, in 1960, Zamunda had 50 people. And in, with those 50 people, their GDP was 200 naira. Their GDP was 200 naira. Now, in 1970, they increased. And now, their GDP was 285 naira, and there were, how many people were there? 75 people. Is it fine? You understand now? OK, good. So what is their per capita income in 1960? Four naira. 200 divided by 50. Do you understand? Eh? Four naira. We are still together. And then what is their per capita income in 3.8? Now, let me quickly say this. They are, they've become richer as a nation, haven't they? In, from 1960 to 1970, their per capita, their GDP has gone up by what? 42 and a half percent. It's gone up by 85 naira. Happy days are here. It's a richer nation. Just like one time, we too overtook South Africa. Giants of Africa. You understand? Zamunda is now stronger, isn't it? Zamunda is richer in terms of GDP. But in terms of per capita income, what has happened? It's dropped by 0.29, hasn't it? By 5%. They are 42.5% richer as a nation, but the individuals have become, on the average, have become 5% poorer. In other words, if you visited Zamunda in 1960 and Zamunda in 1970, you can see, man, they look like they've developed. And yet, the people will say they feel tighter. There's something just, and I've not brought in inflation. This is why I say don't. Criticize me, all right? I'm purchasing power and all of those things. But just looking at it, that on the average, they have become poorer individually, whilst, as it were, in totality, they have become wealthier. But I want to break this down a little bit more. Let's look a little bit further in terms of the internal dynamics of that nation. And here, I want you to see two classes. The top class and the lower class. The top class is the top 20%. The lower class is top 80%. What do I mean by top 20%? Divide the nation into five. Right? Divide the nation into five. The, and just take one and put four here. One, put four. The top class are those, the one. And the 80% are the four. Are we still following? Okay. I know you, uh, you are brilliant people. This is wonderful. All right, now. So if we had... 1960, 50 people, the top 20% will be the top 10. When I mean top 20% in terms of earning, earning, how many people will be there? 10. And then in the 80%, there will be 40. If you do it in 1970 as well, it will be 75 people. So the top 10 will be 15. The top bottom 80 will be 60. Now, here's the thing. In 1960, that 200 now, let's split it across the classes. In 1960, the top 20 got 80 naira. Earned 80 of the naira, and then the bottom 80 earned what? 
120. 120 plus 80 gives 200. And then in 1970, it was 135 to 150. What does this mean? Now let's look at the per capita income of each of them. Don't forget, go to the next slide. What has then happened is the per capita income of the top 20, remember what it was, it was 124, it was 84 what? To 10 people. Go back to that last, go, go back to that slide, go back. All right, so what's the per capita income for the, temp, for the, for the top 20? 80 divided by eight, 8 naira, isn't it? And then for the 80%, 120 divided by 40, which is what? 3 naira. And then here you have 135 divided by 15, that's 9 naira. <laughs> you have taken forever. And 150 divided by 60 is what? 150 divided by 60 is what? 2 and a half naira. So now go, oh yeah, now go to that slide. And I want you to see this. In 1960, even though, listen, even though the average per person is 4 naira, that is not the main reality among the classes. The top 20, their own per capita income is what? 8 naira. In other words, they are earning double the average. But the bottom 80 are what? 3 naira. In other words, what we call an income inequality is actually by what? 5 naira. 8 minus 5. 8 minus 3. <laughs> See them. It's that one that you understand. 135 divided by 15. Whereas, go to the other one, 1970, you have 9 to 2.5. What has happened over 10 years? Let me tell you what has happened over 10 years. The income inequality in 1960 was what? 5 naira. The income inequality in 1970 is what? 6.5 naira. Let me put it how some people have sung it, right? In uh, this guy's song, um, Carlos Santana. The rich have gotten what? And the poor have gotten what? The rich got increased their wealth by 12.5% over the 10 years. The poor reduced by 17%. The income inequality increased by 30%. While the nation got richer, the rich got richer, but the poor got poorer. What does that mean? That's just economics. What does that mean in terms of the social fabric of that society? It means that the realities of the poor socially and the realities of the rich have gotten worse over 10 years. It means that the rich spend more time with themselves and the poor spend more time with themselves. It means that the rich build more gated estates and the, the poor move more and more into shanties. It means that the rich know less about the poor and the poor know less about the rich. Now go back to the equation. When you put sin into that, what then happens? The rich start to think. The poor are the poor because the poor are just lazy. And the poor look at the rich and say, the rich are the rich because the rich are thieves. This income inequality leads to social alienation. When you bring that together with sin, what starts to happen is they know each other less. And the less they know each other, the more resentment builds among themselves. Somebody's office, I know, was burnt last year on Glover. And one of the things that someone else told me, that when the, their own office was very close to it, and when they were viewing the burning, they came downstairs because they had to come out from their own office. Their own office wasn't burning, but it was close. As they were around looking at it, some of the people, the, the people, you know, just the drivers or the around there, they said, good for them, let it burn. Maybe they have been stealing Nigeria's money. That is what leads to evil ways and violence. You saw the rioting that happened? That's exactly why it happened. There was a famous picture that showed ShopRite at Circle Mall, the Circle Mall, and right next, the fence, there was a fence there, and right next to it was what? A shanty. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. How does this social alienation happen? How does this increase in, in income inequality happen? Because here's the bigger problem. Notice that it moved from 1960 to 1970. It actually increased. The nation got richer. National care got bigger. 
But actually, they got the income inequality happened. Do you know why it happened? Because of the development of an elite and the develop and, and then the continuous intergenerational poverty. What do I mean by that? If you are in the top 20, and here's what, don't, please don't mishear my message because I'm not here trying to bash rich people. You are, you'll be mishearing me if I'm saying that. I'm just talking about realities. If you're in the top 20, listen to what happens to your kids. Your kids grew up in secure neighborhoods that have social amenities, right, inside the estate, right? They have access to good health care. Whenever you're, hey, temperature, ah, we have to go to the hospital tomorrow. They go to the hospital where the doctor is smiling at them, playing with them. They even have toys inside there. Many times, you have been able to structure your life such that in some of them, the rich, one parent stays at home or one parent actually is an entrepreneur so that they can drop the kids, they can come back. In other words, there's the presence of a parent. And when you have the presence of the parent, you know what that means? It's better social development, better spiritual development. Look what it takes. Just recently bought some books for my children. Spiritual books, oh, Christian books. Right? $10, $12. That's like 5K, 6K, just one book. Better social development, better spiritual development because the parents are there. Then also they now have better role models. My children have Uncle Yemi, they have Uncle Femi, they have Uncle Solomon. They are exposed to the world. They can travel or they have access to cable and the internet. So they are, their views aren't just narrow. They can see the world. They go to better schools so that when they now take national exams, they have better national grades and they can access better schools. And then when they come out of the university, when they now say, ah, you have to do an internship, but it's not paid. Ah, you can go for the internship. Why? They have leverage. The parents can take care of their transportation and their feeding and their housing. My kids are most likely going to do better than I. Take the converse. Poor kids. They go up in dangerous places, less secure. In fact, both their parents are usually, if they have both their parents, first of all, both of them are hardly around because they work for the rich. They live further away, so it takes them a longer time to get to where they work. They, by the time they spend the time, they have to enter a bus to go back. So they leave very early in the morning, and they leave late at night. What does that mean? The children are exposed to all manner of people. So the chances are, the children, as they get into teenage years, if they want to survive, they get recruited into gangs, or else they may be killed, or they may still be killed in the courts and the gangs, because the parents are not there. Inadequate social and spiritual training. They have no role models, or they have bad role models. The leader of the gang, the one that sold, that sold drugs, they have no access to good health care. When they are, is when the temperature, oh, you are going to the hospital. They are, when they are vomiting, they can't even afford testing, so everything is malaria. So they only have access to quacks. Quacks, not even quack doctors, quack pharmacists. Come on, Lou, herbal treatment that can cure everything from AIDS to poverty itself. And so they also, they have a narrow view of the world. Their only view of the world has been through their local they are local, they are the, the place that they've been. They can't watch TV. They don't have access to the internet in that way. They go to run-down schools. The teachers are not even available. They are so crammed up. So when they eventually now score their grades, their national grades, what happens? It's very bad. What do you expect? You now tell them, ah, for you to actually enter this office, you need to do internship. How much will I get paid? It's called internship, unpaid. But how am I going to eat? By the time you put all of this together, here's what we say. What's wrong with the young generation like this? They are so unemployable. They are the monsters we made. And so when we don't employ them, and now they are young and they must find what, food, you know what they do? They start to steal. They start to kidnap. When they find hopelessness, what do they do? Access to drugs, cheap drugs. But all the while when this is happening, they keep looking at you in your Jeep, saying, go, 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 get away, get away. Resentment keeps building. When looting happens, when destruction happens, know that it is the failure of the system itself. When the social, when the social classes 
are alienated from themselves because of increased inequality. When you throw sin into that, social disharmony happens. Amen? So, that, that takes me to my second point. I should say also, you know what happens when, why, why are people protesting? You know why I'm protesting? It's because a part of the 20%, the bottom of the 20%, are being harassed by the armed officers in the bottom of the 80%. That's what you are seeing there. The resentment that has built up for those other ones in the bottom 80%, they're now trying to see the bottom 20%. You're looking at me, look at you. When did you buy this wristwatch? Small boy like you. It's resentment, social disharmony. Anyway, repenting of our collective flaws. Now, somebody's at this point saying, I came to church. <laughs> what is all this social nonsense? Why are you not preaching spiritual conversion? Why focus on social issues? I want to say because that's what Jonah did. You see, many times we read the scripture and we say they believe in God. What do we think? We think that the Ninevites all of a sudden believed in Jonah's God. That there was some kind of conversion. Actually, no. Most commentators that have looked at it and said, this isn't actually what happened. Just look at the text again. It says they believed in God. They didn't say that they believed in Yahweh, the covenant name of God. It wasn't a covenantal belief. It never says anything about them forsaking their idols. It doesn't say anything about them praying towards the temple. It never says anything about them offering sacrifices towards the God of the Israelites. Which you say, Femi, you are just training it. It was a summary. I'm like, no. You see, Jonah was one of the successors of another prophet called Elisha. Elisha had an encounter with another person from outside of Israel. His name was Naaman. He was a Syrian. When he encountered the Syrian and he finished, you know what the Syrian said, Naaman said in 2 Kings 5, verse 15 and 17, it says, Then Naaman stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That was a spiritual conversion. He says, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules uh, uh, can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but, not God, Yahweh. In other words, Jonah was talking about their social behavior. Listen to me. The church, the church uniquely exists for the spiritual dimension, uniquely, but not exclusively. The church only has this eternal message. But that doesn't mean that you only speak about that. You know why? Because sometimes when you have decaying spirituality in a society, it always leads to social immorality. And so Jonah's call was to them generally, your evil ways, give it up. He was saying they needed to value each other's humanity forsaking social evils and restoring socially just practices. That was what a lot of the Old Testament prophets said to Israel. Of course, they were talking about spiritual renewal, but sometimes they just said, look, I have to call a spade a spade very quickly. I'm going to talk about your social practices. Sometimes when we have to speak to broader, broader audiences, we may solely speak on social issues, not because we don't think the spiritual issues don't matter. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I know that morality cannot be legislated, but it can be regulated. He says, I know that the law cannot, make, the law cannot um, change the heart. I know the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. He says, I know that a law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. And so that is why sometimes this is important to speak just to this issue. But let's take it back to our response, the repenting. First of all, I have to say this before I give you some steps on the, the collective repentance, that for a group of people to effectively repent, it requires that the leaders come to that place first. Notice who took the first response, the king of Nineveh himself. Verse 6. He first demonstrated in verse 6 before he decreed. Many times in leadership, we like to decree before we demonstrate. We say, do as I, not as I. But he did first before he then said. 
It always comes with leaders first. What does that mean? Let's think about a nation. This is why, look, two things will never stop happening. No matter how much you don't like the leaders, no matter how much you, you can't stop praying for them, we Christians. You have to just continue to pray for them. But at the same time, we must never stop the task of leadership development of the people coming forward. It's a place of hopelessness when we say, I've given up on the present leaders, and I've also given up on the future leaders to your own tent, O Israel. Let me tell you, that is not a path to go because the fate of a group is always tied to the direction of their leaders. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> so never stop. We must never stop praying for them. We must never stop praying for them, the ones that are present, but we must never stop the task of leadership development for your children, for the people in your offices, for the people in your churches. Never give up. Because the fate of a group is always tied to the direction of its leaders, where they are going. And I want you now to see how they repented from the greatest, it said, from the greatest, the leadership, to the least. It was for a process of four things. Stop, deny, call, and change. Stop, deny, call, and change. Stop, deny, call, and change. Let's start with stop. They stopped what they were doing. Notice what the king did in verse 6. It says that he rose from his throne, and then he took off his royal robes. In other words, he recognized his personal role and the, his personal role in the issues that were going on, and then also his, his personal privilege that he enjoyed from the status quo. Did you hear what I said? His personal contribution to the status of uh, status quo of what had happened, but also the privilege he enjoyed from that status quo. He was the king. He was wearing royal robes. He was there was a throne. Whilst all this thing was happening, he was enjoying. In other words, the system supported his lifestyle. The problem is if we are ever going to repent, some of us must acknowledge when the situation in our nation, our families, or our churches are bad. If you, don't, if you don't first acknowledge it, when he got up from his throne, he's acknowledging things are not good. First acknowledge it. Some people deny. And once you deny it, then you will not do anything about it. This is not always to say. By saying deny, uh, some people deny it. You see, you remember what I, the, the situation I presented? Zamunda got richer. And people were doing things. It was the top, the top 20% were actually producing things. Some people are opening businesses. Some people are having breakthroughs, right? Some people are getting $20 million for selling their company. Wonderful things are happening in Yaba. Wonderful things are happening in Lekki. I'm not saying that they're not happening. So we have to acknowledge it. It's there. CNN African Voices is there. But at the same time, you also have to see what well, things are getting worse with the 80%. Let's not deny it. Because when we deny, we don't act. And then some of us, we have to acknowledge our privilege. Sometimes you may not have done something personally wrong. You may even be doing good things, charitable things. You may not have done anything personally wrong, but the privilege that you enjoy from it, your privilege contributes to this. We should stop individualizing things. Sometimes, say the group dimension, what do I mean by privilege sometimes? Listen to another way inequality happens continuously in a nation. You gain wealth, you work. And now you've started saving. It's time to invest. What do you do to invest? Because your children, you think of your children's education when they're growing up. So where do you put your money? Fixed income assets. You put it in the money markets. You put it in all these places. You lock it up, basically. When you put it in some of these places, you have locked it from the place of productivity, mainly. Maybe they go and invest somewhere in Dubai. Maybe they go, but largely, many times, it's not actually going into the nation. In other words, it's not going to the places of productivity. It's not creating jobs. But you're getting your 13%. <laughs> so in other words, the money isn't coming in a place that can actually help lift the people. It only keeps lifting you. Now, please, don't me. What? I'm going to do what's best for I'm not just going to throw money somewhere that is not going to be productive. While the system is there individually, it makes sense individually for you to do what's right for you and your family. Do you understand that? This is why I'm saying you can't bash the rich. 
They have to, and I'm talking to Christian rich now, they have to be stewards of the money that God has given them. But I'm saying that at the same time, listen, guys, personal, when I'm talking about acknowledging um, our, our privilege, I am not talking about personal guilt. I am not saying you should feel guilty for something you did not do. I am saying that you can have personal responsibility along with corporate guilt. Not personal guilt, but to say this system that has served me is not a system that works for everybody. So there's corporate guilt, and but because I have personally, I have personally benefited from it, I have personal responsibility, not personal guilt. Do we understand the difference? You get personal guilt for something you have personally done. But many times the system is built, the system was built even without our knowledge. It wasn't told to us, we inherited it. We, we made our best through the system. So we have to be able to say, okay, this system, we're all guilty of it. Because even me too, even though I didn't build it, I have actually enjoyed from it. Corporate guilt, but individually I've, I've, I've gained from it. So it's corporate guilt plus personal responsibility. Stop. Amen? The next thing is, notice is that deny. The king, not only did he rise, he rose from his throne, but then he sat down in dust. He took off his royal robes, but then did what? He covered himself in sackcloth. And then the people and the animals were told not to eat. What is happening? These these are symbolic actions that demonstrate that these people have actually accepted the condition of their nation with conviction. They have accepted the seriousness and the gravity of the condition with conviction. And so what does this? They demonstrate it with symbolic actions. They are fasting. He's wearing these things. Sometimes the thing is, ah, it's true, it's really bad, it's really bad and then you just keep enjoying your life as though nothing had happened. Now, the good thing with symbolic actions is that they differ. So I'm not going to prescribe what that is for you here. For some people, it's still fasting. For some people, it's protesting. These are symbolic actions that say that I actually understand. I'm seeing the gravity of the situation. For some of us, Christians, looking, let me take those two things again. Christians in Nigeria, as well, let's say you're a Christian that comes somewhere like City Church. Can you stop? Can you stop this bemoaning of the fact that all those Christians, all those Christians that like money, all those Christians that, you know, there's a way we talk about it as though it is them. We are all Christians. It's all of us. If God is judging Christianity in Nigeria, he's judging all of us, whether you like it or not, we are into a social contract. So you can see, well, maybe in the general form of the way Christianity is practiced in Nigeria is not the way, is not the way I do it. But I am actually a Christian in Nigeria, so you should have personal responsibility. And that should be demonstrated with symbolic acts. How often do you pray? How often do you fast for the nation? Which leads me to the third thing they must do. They said they must call upon God urgently. Did you see it? In verse uh, verse. It, let them, everyone call on God urgently. That is, after the symbolic acts, they should call upon God urgently. Ah. The pagans prayed. Remember, they were pagans. That's what I said before. And so the question is, the pagans prayed. If pagans prayed, would God, would God answer them? Let me put it in another way. If Muslims call urgently on God and he answers like he answered here, does that mean that we worship the same God? Or do Muslims call upon God and can God answer? Can we pray along with Muslims for the state fate of the nation? Tension. <laughs> the answer is a firm yes controversy now. So let me quickly. The fact that we pray, the fact that they pray and we pray with them and God answered does not necessarily mean that we worship the same God. In fact, we've already seen this happen in this book before. You see, in the beginning, Jonah 1, in verse 6, 
verse 9 and verse 14, with the sailors. The sailors were pagan sailors. Look at what he says. The captain went to him and said, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. He said, but that's Jonah calling on his God. Verse 9, I worship the Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he's telling who his God is. He's saying, all your gods are not gods. I actually worship my own God. He's the one that created the sea and dry land. In other words, he also created you. I'll come to that. And then finally, notice who they prayed to. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. And they did not die. They prayed to that God that they didn't really truly believe in. Why? Because, why did he answer? Because he's the God that created the sea and the dry land. And he created them as well. It is possible, in some instances, that people who don't believe covenantally in this God can call upon the name of the Lord. And he answers them, why? Because he made them. He's the God of creation. Oh, God of creation. To which you say, ah, I'm not sure. Listen, you teach your three-year-olds to pray, don't you? Do you think your three-year-olds are saved? <laughs> when you are teaching them to pray, are you not think, praying that God will answer them? Many of us know people who don't live lives that are Christian lives. You can't say, you will not bet any money that they are Christian. They may call themselves Christian, but you will not bet any money they are Christian. And yet, you know some of them have this prayer life. Many times, 95% of what they pray, you'll be like, I don't think God will approve of that. But some of you will say, if they were parents, you say, well, I'm here today because the way my mother has prayed for me. Eh? Am I lying? There's a mysterious way in which it's true. God does answer the prayer of people that don't believe in him when they acknowledge him as creator. And in this sense, they called urgently on God. They knew they had evil ways. Why do you think that God will not accept those prayers? Stop, deny, call, and then the final thing is what? Change. Change. In addition to your mental acknowledgement and your symbolic mourning from the greatest to the least, and the urgent call to God, we must demonstrate it with action. He says, give up your evil ways and your violence. Let's say you are fasting, and yet you didn't try. What was your fasting about when you didn't change your ways? Isaiah 58, where it talks about the fast that God has ordained. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 58, 5, 6. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only, only a day for people to humble themselves. That's a symbolic act. Or is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? It's not that those things are not important. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to Yahweh is not this, the kind of fast I have chosen to lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying don't fast. He's saying your fast was a symbolic representation that things were bad. So what are you going to do after you fasted? Are you not going to change things? What are you going to do to change? Collective, fast also, collective repenting means that we also have to decide what it is that we are going to change. Now, here's where, as a pastor, I don't go beyond my boundaries. I'm not always sure what policy is right. I do know what the, when the situation is not right, and maybe some of the causes. But some of us, economically, we think on the left. We think, some of you, you think a little bit on the right. But here's the thing. What are you trying to do to change the situation? It cannot just be merely symbolic things. It cannot just be prayer. Not to say that those things is as though those things are unimportant. No, it is all of these things together. What are you going to do to change? When you look at the church in Nigeria, what are you going to do to change? When you look at your families, whether it's extended families, what are you going to do to change? When you look at the nation, what are you going to do to change? That's what repentance is about. Final point. Pardon for our collective flaws. It says that God relented and did not bring on them the destruction, the destruction that he had promised. God actually relented. Many times people think that God is just so hungry to judge. That's not the God that Jonah presents for us. It's amazing that even though in verse 4 he says, Nineveh will be destroyed. It will be destroyed, and yet it wasn't. Why? Because he's so merciful. He's so merciful. So at the end of the day, we say, well, this was a happy ending, right? He said, no, the people were not destroyed. <laughs> OK. <laughs> when you, they say they are coming to destroy you and it doesn't happen, say no. But the, temporarily, yes. 
It depends on how you view it. You see, things didn't happen to them yet. But you know what happened to them? Not too long after, when they started getting power again, guess what? They went back to their old ways. The Assyrian Empire now grew. In fact, at one point, they were now the ones that were going to go and judge Israel. You know that passage we like to quote in Isaiah 28 um, uh, with um, stammering lips and with a different tongue, I will choose, I will speak to these people. Many times we think that's a, a, a verse for speaking in tongues. Actually, it was, a tongue, it was a verse for judgment. God was saying these people are not hearing the prophets. Now I'm going to send the Assyrians against them, whose language you won't understand. And he judged them. So Isaiah was saying, this is going to happen. God is going to use this mighty nation that goes around conquering people. I'm going to judge my people, Israel, for their own, for their own uh, 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 wickedness. But then, listen to what God says about Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10. When the Lord has finished his, all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, when he has finished judging them through Assyria, he will say what? I will punish the king of Assyria for his willful pride of, for his, willful pride of his heart and haughty looks in his eyes. The next king was a bad king. And they became so bad, so bad, that at some point God now says, yep, you know what was meant to happen in Jonah's time? It's going to happen now. That's what the whole book of Nahum is about. You know that Nahum that you liked, that you read last time, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nahum 3, 1 and 19 says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. This was not about Babylon. This was about Nineveh. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap the, their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? You see, when people are clapping for the fall of, of a particular place, you know they were so bad. They went back to their ways. In other words, it was not a happy ending long term. As deep, as important as it is to talk about social change in people's behavior, it will not last if there is not a spiritual change as well in their hearts. It will not be as deep. It will only last for a while before it gives way to injustice again. That is the same part of the equation. You can deal with the social alienation part. You can deal with economic inequality and all of those things. As long as there's sin, there, it never lasts forever. And you could tell that these people, their problem wasn't, wasn't just that they had social alienation from themselves. The problem was also that they had spiritual alienation from God. They really didn't know this God they were calling to. Notice how they were even saying, they said, put up the evil ways, the violence, who knows? <laughs> who knows? God may relent. In other words, they really don't know this God. They are unsure of whether they will perish. They are unsure about the God that they are praying to because they don't understand him in a relationship where he, there are guarantees. They didn't have a covenant relationship with him. To all of my Muslim friends, I also say this. Many times when you ask them on the last day what's going to happen, they say, he may forgive us. There was a problem spiritually. There was a spiritual alienation that led to their social alienation. Do you know what we need, guys? Nineveh, we and Nineveh really needed, Nineveh needed a lasting collective social change, which didn't happen. They needed something that would last, but that was going to spring from an eternal individual spiritual change. And that could only be rooted in an established relationship with God that guarantees promises. Do you understand what I mean? If they were going to have a lasting social change, they needed an individual change, an individual spiritual change that would guarantee their lives for all eternity, but that could only happen if they had an established covenantal relationship with God. Do you think he promises that somewhere? Since we're all, Jonah as a prophet, I've quoted Elisha, I've quoted Isaiah, I've quoted Nahum. Let's bring one more prophet, Jeremiah 31. What does Jeremiah say? The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant, an established relationship with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put their, my law in their world minds and write it on their hearts, not just social behavioral change because they told you to change your ways, but now on your hearts. In this covenant, 
He is going to do the work spiritually in their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. The, the covenant will bring about a real relationship. Not the relationship that he has with us because he created us, but a new one. No longer would they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. These people did not know the Lord. They were saying, he may, he may relent. He says, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. See how we reversed it. Declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Forgiveness of sins leads to a covenant relationship that leads to a heart change that leads to lasting social change. How does God do this? How does he fulfill this promise in Isaiah? Here he says that he turned their fierce, his fierce anger away from them. But if he's turning the fierce anger away, you know what he did? He absorbed it. He absorbed it upon himself because this God in three persons then took that fierce anger and turned it on God the Son on the cross. He turned it on Jesus for you. He turned it on Jesus for everyone that will believe. Jesus, the anger of God was upon Jesus so that we will not perish. He said so that we will not perish. Somebody else perished in their place. That's why John 3, 16 says, For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him will not what? But have eternal life. He deals with the issue of sin because he's a God of outrageous grace. How does he do it? He sends us a merciful Savior. A wonderful, merciful Savior. To seal that covenant so that God can change our hearts. That's why even though we may be in the business of calling out people and calling out social change, let's never forget. That we should call for eternal change as well. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.